Well, the Bible, as you know, is a collection of stories that, when brought together, tell a unified story which helps us to understand who God is. And within the Bible are four particular books called the Gospels, which are specific accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And as well as narrative, you know, they, these, these accounts tell narrative, and they also include the teaching that Jesus gave, the things that he said to the people who were following. And in fact, around a third of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels is delivered by means of parables, stories. Now, a parable means a story who works on different levels. I mean, I guess all of the best stories work on different levels, but there are specific, these are specific stories Jesus told, which seem to have a particular meaning for those he's addressing. There are loads of them, actually. Some of them are out-and-out out sort of glorified stories. Some of them are just very short similes, metaphors. Sometimes they're just one or two lines. More of them are stories of everyday life and culture in the time of Jesus. And they're often told in such a way as to communicate a point with a really significant emotional or spiritual impact. Now these stories, these parables were written down over and over the centuries. People who have been following Jesus, people who have been trying to understand his teaching, people who have listened to and studied the Bible have read and investigated the parables of Jesus, the stories that he told. Preachers in church have preached them and read them and reread them and re-preached them. Theologians have argued over their possible meanings Meanwhile, believers have grown to know and love many of the stories of Jesus. And some of them have become very well-known indeed. You may be aware of the story, for example, of the Good Samaritan or the Wise and Foolish Builders, for example. We're going to come to both of those later on in the series. Um, But there are plenty that are also less well-known. And so what we want to do is take the next few weeks, right through from now, right through till the end of August, uh, beginning of September, just to explore... A real range of these stories that Jesus told, from the really well-known ones to the quite obscure ones, and to look at what they might have meant to Jesus' audience and what they might teach us now. Now, the key to understanding any parable, the key to interpretation, there are two things we need to do when we look at a parable of Jesus. The first thing we need to understand is who are the audience? Who was Jesus telling this story to? Because they're different people. He was communicating a radical message to a mainly illiterate culture. His parables were spoken. They were not written down like we read them. We read them as if they're written down, but they were delivered orally. We need to identify the audience, and we also need to understand the points of reference. Okay? It's, important that we, we, it's important that we remember that. Usually when a parable occurs... There is a sort of preamble which explains who the audience is. Sometimes Jesus is talking to a crowd of people. Sometimes he's answering a specific question from one person. Sometimes he's talking deliberately to the religious leaders and authorities that are present and challenging their thinking. So for example, if you think of a story like The Good Samaritan, I'm just going to unpack this one very briefly. Paul's going to do a proper job on this much later in the summer. But The Good Samaritan, if you don't know it, it's a story about a man who was beaten up by robbers, this is a story Jesus told, and then left for dead on the roadside, and then who would have expected to have been attended to by the first person who came past, who happened to be a priest, except the priest walked by. And he would have then been expected to have been attended to by the second person who walked past, who was a Levite, a temple worker, who also walked by. And in fact, it was the third person who came, a Samaritan, the man's sworn enemy from a tribe of basically people who not only didn't talk, but they literally didn't get on. And it was this 
Samaritan, who was the one who helped, not just looked after, but went the extra mile to look after the man. Well, I don't know if you know that story. I've known that story since I was a kid, actually. The parable was told in response to a question from a guy who was actually a lawyer, who was quite a smug lawyer, quite self-righteous, who was basically trying to show off to Jesus that he knew the law and he'd followed the law. He said, oh, so what is the law? How do I get to heaven? And Jesus says, well, you, what, you keep the law. What's the law? And the man says, well, it's to love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, well, there you go. And the man says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this whole story of the Good Samaritan that we know so well. He doesn't tell it to the crowds. He doesn't tell it to the religious authorities. He tells it to this smug lawyer. They, okay, they all happen to be listening too. Okay? And it's really important that we understand who the audience was. He tells the story to the man, and at the end, he says back to the man, so, you ask the question, who is your neighbor? Which of these guys was the neighbor? And of course, the man says, well, it was the guy who acted like a neighbor. And so it's important that we understand the audience and it's important that we understand the points of reference. Because when Jesus tells a story, he calls for a response. It's like a really good joke. You don't get a joke unless you get the points of reference. How many times have you tried to explain a joke to your kids? Right? Why is that funny, Dad? Well, you sort of lose the, lose the will to live in the middle of, t- of, of trying to explain it usually. And it's because they don't understand the points of reference. To understand a joke, you have to understand the references. And if those references are outside of your culture, then it takes a bit more work to decode them and to explain them. And it's the same with parables. So we need to understand the points of reference so that we can then interpret how Jesus was aiming for a response, what kind of emotional impact he was heading for. So in the case of the Good Samaritan, the reference points are the characters in the story. This man was beaten up on the Jericho Road, and the audience that Jesus was talking to would know that that was an unsafe road. It's quite likely that you would get beaten up on that road or you would get attacked by robbers. And the man was pretty stupid for traveling on his own, maybe, I don't know. But that was a point of reference that they would relate to. And then, of course, they would recognize the priest. And then they would recognize the Levite. And then they would recognize the Samaritan. So Jesus paints these guys as pious and disinterested. And we can assume that most of Jesus' hearers, most of his audience, can identify with those points of reference. Which is what sometimes makes it tricky for us to interpret today, because there's a whole different culture going on around Jesus' parables. And so sometimes, before we can understand the emotional impact, we have to understand the culture around it. Now, I um, <clears throat> this is something like the story that I was told as a kid, uh, the Good Samaritan story. You know, I, I learned the Bible story as it is in the Bible. But then also as a kid, I grew up um, with my parents helping out in a youth group, a Christian youth group in the 1970s. And we're not really into this stuff now, but back then they were really into these things called sketches and dramas. And so I grew up around people who used to act out in quite a, let's be honest, quite a cheesy <laughs> way, um, the stories of Jesus. And so I actually know the story of the Good Samaritan as the, the parable of the good punk rocker. Okay? And I could probably, I'm going to spare you, but I could probably do the whole thing because I heard it so many times when I was a kid. There was a man going on a train from London to York, London to York, London to York, London to York, when he was set upon by, you know this one? Some of you are showing your age and the rest of you are not willing to accept that. 
you know, you're, not, you're just not owning up to this. You know, it's back there in your psyche somewhere. And basically this guy gets attacked by football hooligans, which is a very 70s thing. And um, the first person that comes along is a vicar. Um, so that's a little bit similar and they can recognize that. And the second person that comes along is a social worker. And the social worker goes... I really care about the kids, you know, and doesn't help. And the last person who comes along, who is the most unlikely person you would ever think would help someone in trouble, it's the punk rocker. So I know that story as the parable of the good punk rocker. And that's just one example of how over the years people have tried to understand the cultural references and then reinterpret these stories for today's audience. I mean, that's a 70s audience. It probably doesn't even work now. Last week, for example, when Trevor shared the story of the lost son, he was talking about um, the, 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 the prodigal son and how the, the kid went to his dad and said, I want my inheritance. And he then explained, I don't know if you remember if you were here, about how asking for your inheritance early had a different impact to how we think it would have done. We think, he, he said 21st century thinking would say that, that he was asking for them, for, he was basically saying, I wish you were dead. But the man would have expected that the boy would have taken his inheritance and come and, and, and run the property and run the estate with the dad. It was a togetherness thing. And um, Trevor was explaining how if you look at that through 21st century eyes, it looks different to how we think it looks. And you can listen to that talk on the website from last week. So with all that in mind, it's really important that we identify the point, the audience, and we identify the points of reference. And that's my introduction to the whole series. We're going to look at a whole range of different parables um, over the next few weeks. But with that in mind, let's kick off with the story of the sower, okay, which is a great example to start with. And if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn up Mark chapter 4 or find it on your phone. I'm not going to put the words up here because it's quite a long Passage, so it'd be great if you'd have that to follow. If you need a Bible, there's some over in the far corner there. Um, help yourself. Um, but we're going to look at the story of the sower, which is a great example to start off a series on parables with, because unlike most other parables, the story of the sower, as well as the actual account of the story, there is actually an explanation of the story in the gospel account, which we'll come to in a few minutes. So Jesus, in this account in Mark not only tells the story, but then later explains to his disciples the meaning of the story, which is why it's a great introduction. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 4. You can also find very, very similar versions of this story in Matthew 13 and in Luke chapter 8. But I'm going to read from Mark, Mark chapter 4. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore, along the water's edge, and he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said, and here's where the story starts. Um, This is Mark chapter 4, verse 3. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, but because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so they didn't bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it came up and grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, 
some hundred times. And then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. I'm going to pause there, but I'm going to come back and read the next couple of sections in a moment. So keep your, keep your Bible open there. The, where have we got? What have we got next? Yes, the classic interpretation of this story, the one that I've heard most times growing up in the church, is that this story is about preaching the gospel. And it's about evangelism, and it's about spreading the word of God. The message of this parable, according to the classic interpretation, is that it's all about preaching. I mean, it is, after all, called the parable of the sower. And the message of this story is you just got to keep preaching gospel. You don't know who will respond. You don't know when they will respond. But you've just got to keep doing it. I've heard this taught a number of times in my life. Okay, some people have, you know, even though this and and what that it's all about the sower, even though he only features in it once. That's the name of the parable. That's what it's come to know as. And some people have said this is an encouragement to Jesus disciples, both then in the day of Jesus and now to just press on with their ministry, just to keep going in the way that a determined farmer would. You just keep sowing the seed and you just keep sowing the seed. And never mind the, the harsh realities of life. You just keep preaching the message of Jesus to all and sundry, and some people will make it through to the kingdom of God. And that is a message. I think you can read that in here, but I think that just to stop there is a very simplistic way of interpreting this story of Jesus. I wonder if you've ever thought about why Jesus describes such shockingly inefficient farming methods. I mean, no farmer is going to waste seed by throwing it on a path. And also, have you ever thought about the whole 30-fold, 60-fold, 100? I mean, have you ever seen a plant that grows 100 times what it... I mean, that's pretty incredible. And Jesus' audience would have been listening to this thinking, he's talking in cartoons. He's talking in riddles. They, I mean, this, don't forget, this is a farming culture. He's talking their language. Okay, He says, oh, there's a sower. Everybody immediately knows what that means. So why would this farmer delete? Why is he talking like this? Surely he's using extreme imagery to talk and seems to be talking in riddles. And that's because I think there's more going on in this parable, in this passage, than meets the eye initially. And one of the themes of this passage, I think there are two key themes going on in what Jesus is saying. And one of them is about a promised harvest, a kingdom of God harvest. Of fruitfulness. You see, whenever Jesus quotes something or uses an image or quotes a passage from the Old Testament, all of his readers will know the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament. And so by telling stories about agriculture and farming, Jesus isn't just referencing their day-to-day world. He's actually reminding his listeners that God has promised a harvest, not just the harvest of crops and food, but a harvest of his kingdom. In the Old Testament, agricultural fruitfulness is a standard image. I mean, it's spread throughout the whole of the Old Testament. It's an image that means the blessings of the good time coming, the hoped for new age, things to look forward to in the future. The kingdom of God means fruitfulness. And it's described in agricultural terms. So you can, for example, look at a number of texts, but the one I want to just flag up is from Isaiah 55. This is the prophet Isaiah, the most well-known prophet 
of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible, who says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. For as you see that picture, Isaiah says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, Isaiah is saying, just like you will, a farmer will sow seed and the rain will water it and you will see fruitfulness, my word is the same. I will spread my word throughout the earth and it will not return to me empty. Stuff will happen. Things will grow. Fruitfulness. Just as the rain and snow can't fail to nourish the earth, so God's word of promise can't fail to bring his people to the richness and the fullness of the eternal life of the hope that he promises. And this is just one example. There is loads of this kind of imagery in the Old Testament, making this link between fruitfulness in the land and the harvest of God's kingdom. It's, I mean, you can take this all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Actually, God is saying there was this beautiful place, this beautiful creation. And yes, it was ruined and yes, it was spoiled. But I am going to come back and restore that. The whole of the Bible, as we've talked here before, the whole of the meta narrative of God, the big story of God, is about recreation, restoration, making things new. Behold, he says in uh, Revelation, I am making all things new. So Jesus is tapping into this imagery when he starts to talk about the sower and the seed. This is not just a story about go preach and the word will come back. He's going somewhere a lot deeper. And we know, don't we, with hindsight, that in fact it was Jesus' death and resurrection that was able to bring about the ultimate and will bring about the ultimate restoration of the world, the ultimate recreation. Okay? And later Jesus explains to his disciples, the seed in this story is the word, that's me, Jesus says. I'm the one, I'm the promised fulfillment. In me, you will see this hoped for new age of the rule of God, of fruitfulness arriving. But the crowds who are hearing him don't necessarily get this. They haven't cottoned on yet to the fact that this is Jesus. Yes, they get that he's talking about God in some way. Yes, they get that he's talking about a promise of hope and restoration. And in fact, not just the crowds who hear it the first time Jesus says it, but the crowds who hear it 30 years later after Mark has written his gospel and, he's, and people are telling this story. Because don't forget, you know, the oral tradition continued and Mark wrote all this. Mark was the first one to write the story of Jesus down, maybe third, somewhere between 30 and 40 years after Jesus has died. And he writes this whole account and then people take it around and they read it out loud and they read the story of Jesus and they read this again. And every time people hear it, again, it echoes, it resonates. Don't forget, they don't have the internet. Okay? They don't have that ability. But what they have are the Jewish scriptures that they've been taught ever since they were kids. Okay? And so Jesus is doing this, and he's, it's almost like he's throwing in things which go to a deeper level. Okay? Little clues. Little secrets. Little mysteries. A bit like a slow reveal marketing campaign. Do you know what I mean? You know how you get these very cool, trendy marketing campaigns and they have these bizarre adverts on with like one word and you look at it and you think, what on earth is that about? And then like two weeks later, some other advert will come up and it'll be two words and only the really quick people will get it and then eventually everyone will get it. Do you know what I mean? Or in some cases, in my case, you never get it. But 
you know. So I think that's part of what's going on here. There's this whole image of fruitfulness and the land and the hope of God's kingdom. And then there's one other thing that we also get an insight into. Um, And in order to get to that, I want to read the next section. So the next section from verses 10 to 13 is called the purpose of teaching in parables. So it says, when he was alone, the 12, meaning the 12 disciples, and the others around him asked him about the parables. And he told them this, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that, and then he quotes, they may ever be seeing, but never perceiving and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And that's a quote. It's actually a quote from a different part of the Old Testament, which I'll come to in a minute. But first, note the change of audience at this point. Really important to note that Jesus is now not talking to the crowd. He's talking to his close team. He's talking to his disciples. Okay? And it seems that what's going to happen here is that they are going to benefit from the extra insight that he's going to give them. They didn't tell all the crowd. And what he seems to be saying is there's a secret mystery about the kingdom. This kingdom message is given to some, but not to all. And that that some of them will be called insiders. They, the disciples, are in some way insiders. And there are others who are outsiders, who who will see, he says, but not perceive, who will hear, but not understand. Now, I want to make one thing clear here. I don't think that Jesus means that there are outsiders to his kingdom. Because in other places in the Bible, he makes it very clear that that's not the point. Okay, But I think in terms of using the language insiders and outsiders, he is talking about those who have a full understanding of what's going on and those who don't yet have a full understanding of what Jesus is talking about and what he's about and who he's for. And it's really significant because Jesus bookends the first story, the first passage we read, with, the word, with, with instructions about listening. If you remember verse 3, and I paused when I read it, the first thing he says is, listen. And then at the end of the story, the last thing he says is, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. There's a difference between hearing and hearing. Do you know what I'm saying? There's a difference between hearing the words and actually understanding, taking on board what Jesus is saying. And what what he's saying, I believe, is if you're willing to surrender your own self-reliance, your own stuff, and you're willing to submit to God, then there is something to discover here. Here is a message that will bring life. And when he says that bit about seeing but not perceiving and hearing but not understanding, he's quoting from Isaiah 6. This is the other reference point, if you like, for this story. The other Old Testament reference point. And again, when Jesus quotes that, everybody who's listening, especially the disciples, they would know from the scriptures that part of Isaiah. So we've already looked at the kingdom harvest. That's one of the reference points. And the other one here, which again they would understand, is where he says this quote from Isaiah 6. And here's the full quote in Isaiah. He says, go, and this is Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and then stand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And this passage from the prophet would be well known to those who knew their Hebrew scriptures, which would include the disciples. It's a, 
And it's about how even though Isaiah, who was a significant prophetic voice in the land of Israel and part of their history and part of their culture, it's about how he'll speak the word of the Lord in his generation, but it will still have the effect of hardening some people's hearts and how the word of God doesn't always land. About how sometimes people will hear, but their hearts will be hard or their hearing, their senses will be dull. Some people, Jesus is saying, will hear the word of God, but not understand because they've closed their minds and their hearts to the message and they won't perceive it. And so it seems to me that despite the title, The Sower, this story really isn't about the sower at all, but it's about the soil. And you could probably better title this The Parable of the Soil. Because actually the point of this story really is about the ground where the seed falls and what happens. Because if the seed is the word of God, if the seed is Jesus, if the seed seed is the message of the kingdom of God, then the story is about the place where it lands or the response or the heart of the person in who that word lands. And now, beautifully, for the benefit of the disciples and for us, Jesus actually goes on in verse 14 to interpret the story for the disciples. And most of the parables that we're going to look at don't have this. We have to figure it out for ourselves. In this case, he does give an explanation. So reading from verse 13, he says, oh, I'll come back to that. Actually, we'll leave that up. He says, and I'm going to read from verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? That's interesting, isn't it? It's almost like this one is the key to all the others. The farmer sows the word, Jesus says. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed sown on the rocky places, they hear the word and they at once receive it with joy, but, they have, but since they have no root, they only last a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others are like the seed sown among thorns. They hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Verse 20, others like seed sown in good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So there are four possible places where this seed fell, four possible different types of ground or soil. And if Jesus as the sower is throwing out the seeds of his word, then those who hear it are like one of these four people, one of these places. Let's look about the landing places for the word of God. So first of all, he talks about the path or the road. And we're not, by the way, talking about a concrete road, I don't think. We're talking about a path which is hardened soil. I mean, it's just an area where they don't sow because everybody walks on it. So the soil's been stamped down. It's been compressed. And Jesus talks about how the people of Israel have hard hearts, particularly the Jewish leaders, he says, who, although they knew the law, seemed not to know the heart of God and were hardened to Jesus' message. I wonder if you or I, I know I do, I wonder if you know anyone who you would say, perhaps not to their face, but you would say, is hardened to the message of Jesus. I wonder if you know anybody who 
If they were to hear the word of God, it would literally bounce off. There would be nowhere for it to take root because it's just hard, compacted. There could be loads of reasons for that. Maybe it's cynicism. Maybe it's pain or disappointment. And what about ourselves? Do our hearts ever become hardened to God's word, hardened to Jesus? Do we ever kind of think, oh, I've just got to cope? I can't stay soft. I've got to stay hard. I remember talking to a friend who, whose parents left, whose, dad, whose parents split up when, when she was 11. And her mum said, uh, right, we've just got to cope now. She took away her comic, said, we haven't got, we haven't got, the, we haven't got any spare. We can't, that's an excess. She said, you can't have that. We're, we're going to be really, life is going to be really tough now, and we're just going to have to get through, and we're just going to have to cope. Took away her comic, said, we haven't, got, we haven't got time for that. We haven't got money for that. I mean, an experience like that, would pick, could, you can see how something like that could make you hard-hearted, because push it all down. So hence, in this story, there is soil where the seed just can't take root. And because it can't take root, it's vulnerable. It just gets taken away. And in order for that situation to change in someone's life, some sort of breaking up of this ground has to take place. So a guy, a vineyard pastor called Tri Robinson, who knows all about farming and stuff, wrote a book about this. And I've got a quote from him. He said, for a gardener, timing and soil preparation are extremely important. And he said this, God cannot work with us until brokenness has occurred. That sounds painful, and it probably will be. But it's the only way in which our hearts can become softened again. Repentance is the key to breaking up hard ground. Acknowledging who God is and who we are, and turning away from our stuff, and admitting that we just can't sort this out on our own. Maybe for some people we know the best prayer we can pray is that they can come to a place of brokenness. Acknowledging that simply they can't fix whatever the problem is on their own. Maybe it's the same for some of us. Maybe some of us have to come to that place where we just say, I can't do this on my own. I have to come before God, repent of my ability to try and do this thing on my own. Come to a place of brokenness. Maybe... Maybe the seed falls in rocky soil, meaning that the, the, there's not much. There is some soil, but there's not very much. It's very shallow. And Jesus says, these things, you know, you'll see an initial plant grow, but then if the sun comes up, it'll wither and die because there's nowhere to put its roots. Talking about people who might perhaps first hear the word of God and they respond with great enthusiasm, but there's such shallow soil of their character that when the emotions wear off, and difficulty arrives, it's just kind of, you know, doesn't really last. I remember as a kid going to a, a Christian conference called Spring Harvest uh, when I was 16. Had an amazing time. We were worshipping. A man called Graham Kendrick was teaching a song called Shine, Jesus, Shine. And um, it was brilliant. And I had a wonderful, we loved meeting in God's presence, but I do remember the withdrawal symptoms afterwards of just kind of coming back to earth with a bump and saying, oh, it's more than just that then. See, meeting Jesus and experiencing his love and his acceptance and his forgiveness is a really wonderful thing. And being part of a loving community is brilliant. And getting involved is great fun, but 
But when the emotions wear off and life kicks in, that's when it really gets hard. Some people just don't last the course because their roots never went down deep. Joe went to a youth group uh, as a teenager, and nearly all of them, at the time they were all following Jesus, and most of them are not now. I think I probably have a similar experience. If our roots don't go or can't go deep, then we aren't going to last the course. So the question is, how's the soil of our hearts and how are we cultivating it? Is the soil in our heart deep enough for the roots of God's word to grow down? And that's the kind of thing we talk about here. And, you know, that's, that's, we're talking emotional health. We're talking relationships and vision and discipleship. <clears throat> we're starting a brand new series. I'll let the cat out of the bag. We're going to do something called a year of biblical literacy. We'll launch it and I'll explain it in September. <laughs> it's just another way of helping us dig the soil in our hearts so that the roots of what God wants to do can go deep. What about the thorns and the weeds? This is thorny ground, Jesus describes, where the seed gets overwhelmed by the worries of this life or the deceitfulness of wealth or the desires for other things come in and they choke it. So the seed is okay, but there's stuff in there that's getting in the way of those plants. In the message, this, the message version of this story, it says, the seed cast in the weeds represents the ones who hear the kingdom news but are overwhelmed with worries about all things they have to do and the things they want to get and the stress strangles what they heard and nothing comes of it. And for some of us, following Jesus has become one of just several priorities in our life, along with succeeding and maybe having a satisfying career or getting enough money or having a stable family. There's nothing wrong with any of those things in themselves, but the warning here that Jesus issues is around deceitfulness and desires. And the world generally seems to promote the message of needing more and not being satisfied. And so what are the thorns in our soil that risk choking our relationship with God? Is it money or possessions or education? What do we dream about in our idle moments? You know, That's a great question. And the last description of soil that Jesus gives is good soil. The seed planted in good earth, he says, represents those who hear the word, who embrace it, who produce a harvest beyond their wildest dreams. What, are, what does a gardener need for a fertile soil? I don't, I've said this lots of times, I don't profess to be a gardener. I have no idea, personally, but I've read up on it. So um, it says here that soil fertility is a complex process that involves the constant cycling of nutrients between organic and inorganic forms. As plant material and animal waste decompose, they release nutrients to the soil solution. So again, um, Troy Robinson said, fertile soil, where the best growth happens is where there's been a process of composting which has gone on. In other words, the dead stuff has been allowed to decompose and go back into the ground and give birth to something new. Which is a little bit like when Chris was talking to us about grief when we were doing our emotional health series. And we talked about how the process of grief and loss, in order to get through that healthily, we have to allow stuff that's dying and gone to go and then to sow into the roots of whatever comes new. That's in an emotional health space. But it's in this kind of soil that roots are able to grow deep and support strong growth. So, question, when do we need to embrace? Where do we need to embrace brokenness? 
Where do we need to acknowledge that we've become hardened to God's word? What desires and dreams are fighting against Jesus in our minds for priority? What steps does he want us to take today to keep allowing God's word to go deeper in our lives? The message of this parable seems to be that the soil in the story represents the hearts of the people who hear the word of God. And not everyone who hears the word will respond in a way which it will take root. So yes, there is something for preachers and sowers to keep sowing and to keep preaching. But I think there's more in here for the listeners and hearers than for the preachers and the sowers. And so as I said at the start, this parable demands a response from us. Are our hearts ready to receive God's word and allow it to grow in us? How is the soil of your heart? What has God been saying to you recently? Are we, we, are, we might be listening, but are we hearing? Is the word landing? Is it taking root? How are we growing? What does this look like every day? How fruitful is our life and ministry? How are our relationships? How are we relating to our friends? If the word of God is taking root in our lives, then it will have an effect on everything we do. Everyone relate to all of our values, all of our attitudes and how we make decisions. And it will especially impact on how we respond in a crisis or a problem when our emotions get involved. I'd love us to just take a minute to reflect and respond. We actually have quite a few minutes. And not just yet, but in a couple of moments, I'd love the band to come back as well. But why don't we just take a minute to stand and just be quiet together. I just want to give you one more word of encouragement. It's got nothing to do with the parable, but it is something that I think God has been speaking to us about and we will continue to speak about it over the holidays. We were praying as a team this week and this word came. And I'm not going to explain it particularly or the context of it from the Bible, but it's from Joshua 3, and it just says this. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. There is a sense in which God is calling us to rededicate ourselves to him. To consecrate means to make holy or to set apart. I believe that has application into, into us as a whole church in the season that we're in, but I'll unpack that another day. Because I also think it has an application to us here and now as we listen to this story. And the suggestion is, whatever it's going to take to make the soil of our hearts fertile and ready for God, let's do that. So I'm just going to repeat the questions that I asked, and then these guys have a song that really, really fits into where this is at and will help us to connect with Jesus. But the questions were, where do we need to embrace brokenness? Because we've become hardened to God's word. Why don't you close your eyes if you want to, and why don't you just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you as you reflect on these questions? Where do I need to embrace brokenness? Because I've become hardened to God's word. Or what desires and dreams 
are fighting against Jesus for priority in my thinking. What steps can I take to keep allowing God's word to go deeper in my life? What steps do I need to take to embrace brokenness, to consecrate myself, to trust that God has an incredible future despite whatever else is going on? And to know that I want the roots of God's word to go deep in my life. Holy Spirit, we embrace and welcome your work among us. Gardening is a messy and a dirty business. It's not clean. It's not not free of mess and smell but it's what needs to happen in order for fruitfulness that's why it's such a great metaphor for what Jesus is doing in our lives what does it take for us to embrace the brokenness Holy Spirit, we thank you for what you're doing in us.